Hello and welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. My name's Chris Fernandez-Packham. Thank you for tuning in. How scared have you ever been in your life? For most people, fear is something that's happening to us in circumstances that are just uncomfortable. For most of us, we haven't ever had the gut-wrenching fear that goes with a threat to our lives. But for those who have, it is an experience unlike any other. And for the men about to fight in Waterloo, they were knowing the full blast of that icy, gut-wrenching fear. The only way I can describe it is knowing that you have to do something. You don't want to do it, perhaps, and you know it might be dangerous, but there's no avoiding it. It's that feeling in the pit of your stomach when you're about to perhaps sit an exam or propose to someone or go to court. Well, I can't even imagine that those feelings amounted to anything like the feeling of standing in line as a Napoleonic infantryman, hearing the drums begin to beat, seeing the eagles or the banners raised high, and the shouts of the officers, advance, the sergeants counting time, drums beating a tempo. But For the thousands of men at Waterloo, that was exactly what was happening. No one quite knows the exact time of the first attack the French made at Waterloo. But whatever happened, whatever time it actually was, we do know that it was at Hougamont. The French had deployed their first corps under General Darlion with 16,000 men and 1,500 cavalry, plus a cavalry reserve on the right of their position. And on their left was a second corps under General Rael with 13,000 infantry and about 1,300 cavalry and a cavalry reserve, 4,600 men. In the centre of the French position, about the road south of the Inn La Belle Alliance, were a reserve including Labau's 6th corps with 6,000 men and the 13,000 infantry of the crack Imperial Guard and a cavalry reserve of 2,000. If you've listened to my previous episodes, you will know why I said precise timings in battle are hard to judge. But we do know that the first proper French attack was to be against the farm of Hougamont. The plan was for it to be led by Prince Jerome's division. It was to be a feint attack that would draw off Wellington's reserves. Then a grand battery pounding would weaken Wellington's centre, followed by a massive attack by General Raoul on the left of La Haisante and by General Darlion on the right. Darlion would therefore be attacking Wellington's left as Wellington's centre collapsed and the British flank and centre would be broken, pushing them into a retreat to the sea and probably destruction. But things started badly for the French. If you had to pick a bad spot to be during the Battle of Waterloo, then attacking Hougoumont was probably high on the list for the French. I've called it a farm in the last episode, or a fortified position, which implies it was a small house, with perhaps some fortifications. It was actually much more. It had been turned into a miniature fortress. I've put a plan of the Hougoumont complex on the website, 
That gives you an excellent outline of how the buildings stood. It was basically a square-shaped series of buildings, all solidly stone-built, made up of a great barn, a three-storey main house, a chapel, and formidable wooden gates in stone arches. If this was all, it would be a horrible place to attack, with just a musket and no armour. But it was far, far tougher. To one side was a surrounding six-foot-high wall that created an enclosed garden. This was on the right-hand side of the farm from the French point of view. Then around this was an orchard that was surrounded by a large, thick hedge with gates in it. This was then surrounded still further by a wood. The attackers couldn't even see much through the smoke of battle, which meant they were stunned by finding heavy woodland and then the heavily defensive wall. Defending Hugemon were the 1st Battalion of the 2nd Nassau Regiment, with additional detachments of Jaegers and Landwehr from von Kielmansig's 1st Hanover Brigade. The Light Company of the 2nd Battalion Coldstream Guards, under the command of Lieutenant Colonel Henry Wyndham, was also stationed in the farm in the chateau, and the Light Company of the 2nd Battalion 3rd Guards, under Lieutenant Colonel Charles Dashwood, was in the gardens and the grounds. The two light companies of the 2nd and 3rd Battalions, 1st Guards, were initially positioned in the orchard under the command of Lieutenant Colonel Lord Sultan. Lieutenant Colonel James MacDonald, the Coldstream Guards, had overall command of 1,500 men at Hougamon, and he was ordered to hold it to the last. So, to capture Hougamon, the French had to cross a wood, push through a thick hedge, then get through the orchard, break through the outer walls or breach one of the great gates, all the while under heavy fire from the defenders, who included expert riflemen and some of the elite British Guards regiments. At the rear of the farm was a hidden sunken lane that could be used to move reinforcements and ammunition to the defenders. If this is sounding like one of those horrific World War I-style attacks, then that is a little what it was like. The fighting in Hougamont was to be a brutal affair, hard fought on both sides, with moments of intense heroism. The initial French units had no idea what they were in for, though, and began the assault with great vigour. They were soon shattered. Despite great bravery, the first French assault was broken up by rifle, musket and artillery fire, with the French General Baudun dying. Vicious fighting developed as the French attempted to clamber up walls, sometimes standing on each other's shoulders. Finally, as the French were pushed back, Allied reinforcements were sent in. The French had lost 1,500 men in just 30 minutes. Still, in some ways, they had been successful. They had pulled some of Wellington's reserves into Hougamon and diverted some Allied attention from the centre and left wing. Now, though, comes a moment of historical controversy. It seems that General Raoul, who was Prince Jerome's superior, advised him that he had done enough at Hougamon. Yet Prince Jerome didn't stop the attacks. He intensified them. Years later, Prince Jerome is supposed to have claimed to have received orders directly from Napoleon during the battle to capture Hougamon, no matter what. According to Prince Jerome, Napoleon said, quote, If Grouchy 
does not come up, or if you do not carry Hugamon, the battle is decidedly lost. So go and carry Hugamon. Kote ke kote. End quote. If that is actually true, then Prince Jerome was bound to carry on with attacking Hugamon. Not just attacking. If the order was as Jerome described it, then he was being told that his role of capturing the farm was mission critical to winning the battle. It was perhaps phrased with the at-all-costs tag that signified casualties and difficulties were irrelevant. Of course, it might be that Prince Jerome was seeking to justify making repeated, futile attacks that might have killed thousands of men pointlessly and even ruined Napoleon's chances of winning the battle. Equally, it is wholly possible that Napoleon did view Hugemon as just that vital. He directed other attacks at it during the day and seems to have had his eyes on it. Napoleon could spot a pivotal point easily and was known to be willing to spend troops' lives carelessly if it would give him a victory. Hugemon was falling into French hands would have opened Wellington's right flank to serious fire and attacks just as he would have been struggling against attacks on his centre and left. Heavy guns could have been moved up to batter the British and Allied positions. Well, on Napoleon's orders or not, more attacks would go in against Hugemon, especially between 12.30 and 3 o'clock in the afternoon. The French attacked from multiple directions, through trees and hedges, desperately trying to get shots at hard-to-see Allied shoulders who were in hard cover. The French didn't waver. Under heavy fire, a group of brave-beyond-reason Frenchmen charged the North Gate. At their head was Lieutenant Le Gros of the 2nd Light Infantry, a giant of a man nicknamed the Smasher, wielding a heavy axe. He battered his way in with 40 men. A bitter fight began in the courtyard. The French weren't supported by reinforcements and the British defenders were desperately trying to get the gates closed before male French troops could arrive. The French fought fanatically as the gates were closed at last and they were finally killed to almost the last man. Only a nine-year-old drummer boy was spared. Wellington certainly regarded this as a critical moment. If Hugemon fell early, he would be exposed. Whilst the troops at Hugemon had their battle reduced to the hell of trying to climb walls under fire or batter down gates or, for the defenders, holding off hordes of desperate enemy assaults. Elsewhere, the great men of the day decided that they were ready to start things off for real. At 1300 hours, General Dassalès, the commander of the French Grand Artillery, shook the heavens in one simultaneous shot. The French had delayed starting the battle to let the ground dry out. This was to make the guns easier to move and more effective when they fired. Even so, artillery could weigh a couple of tonnes or more. Even on dry roads, they were hard to move. Here, the French had to drag them through the mud. Gunners were exhausted before the battle even started. The Allies watched some French gunners struggling into position since at least 1100 hours. Not that being in position would bring the gunners much rest. The cannon didn't have any recoil control mechanism, so that when they fired, the force rolled them backwards, and then they had to be dragged back into position with ropes. Guns could require 
eight-man teams to position, load, aim, fire, clean, reposition, clean again, and then repeat the process. There was no ear protection, so gunners became progressively deafened during their careers. Some wrapped cloth around their ears or stuffed them with cheese. The cannon were unreliable, and a miscut fuse could cause a gun to fire early. A man who didn't keep well care of a cannon as it fired could be crushed as two tons of metal were propelled backwards by the recoil. Defects in the cannon barrel could be lethal. Constant firing could cause the defect to become a disaster as barrels burst in use, killing gun crews. Still, the guns were the key to Napoleon's plan for the day. His great guns were planned to shatter key points of the Allied line. Cannon shot could kill whole ranks of men. Imagine that for a moment. Soldiers could take years to train, yet be swept away by a single cannon shot. All their hopes and dreams snuffed out. Families lost brothers, sons, uncles in seconds. But it wasn't remarked. Close the ranks, the sergeants would call. Stoic British soldiers would move to close the gaps. The newer allied regiments would shuffle more nervously together. And this was what Napoleon's success rested on. Being able to shake and shatter the perfectly chosen spots in an enemy's line. Then batter the weak points with infantry and then turn loose his cavalry to break the remnants and ride them down. The Grand Battery pumped out over 2,700 rounds in 30 minutes at 700 yards. On such a tiny battlefield, this was murderous for exposed troops, and Napoleon viewed his great guns as the real winners of battles, saying, quote, It is with artillery that one makes war, end quote. I'm going to read a quote from 24 Hours at Waterloo, by Robert Kershaw, describing the opening of the French bombardment. Quote, Lieutenant Emile Bedaman, with the same battalion, was also gravely reflecting on his survival chances. I was confronted with the question, will you see your homeland and loved ones again, or will your restless life be cut short by an enemy's sword? Soldiers often dwelled on the trauma of an anonymous death craving reassurance that their loved ones at least would remember them. Baderman philosophically reflected that a man is always at the threshold of eternity. It is only that the world around does not always remind him of it in all its earnestness. He was reacquainted with the fickle nature of his own mortality when the grand battery suddenly opened fire. Soon the balls from the artillery on both sides were flying over and beyond us. There was activity both to their right at Hougamon and to their left. For the moment their sector remained quiet, except for the incessant buzz of cannonballs, which only caused broken branches to shower on our heads. End quote. Thoughts like this were common on both sides. It is probably a common feeling for most soldiers throughout history, I would imagine. It isn't possible to say with certainty. Warfare has changed over time. And also, warfare is often a continuation of the culture waging the war. Did a Christian knight reflect with fear the night before battle? Or was his worldview different enough that he only saw the blessings of God if he died in battle? Did perhaps his noble upbringing temperamentally shape him to always enjoy and revel in war? Did a Mongol archer even view what he did as war when he rode under Genghis Khan or Subadai? Or 
Was it just another form of hunting from the saddle? No different from hunting a dangerous beast. Was it the lack of autonomy, perhaps, that created a particular fear for Napoleonic troops? Having to stand motionless in ranks as cannons blasted your friends to either side away. And you couldn't take cover unless given orders. Worse, unlike modern artillery, or the shells that cannons could fire, which were invisible, men could see slow-moving cannonballs lazily flying through the air towards them as they approached their longer range. They looked slow and clumsy the more distance they covered. Heavy balls of metal, slowly bouncing a few times across the ground. This might not sound too bad, but they were still fast-moving hunks of heavy metal. If they touched a man, they would tear off limbs, heads, break bones and rupture organs. Even spent ones could lop off a foot with terrifying ease. Raw recruits had to be sternly warned not to put a foot out to stop a ball that was lazily coming towards them like a slow-motion bowling ball as it would easily take off the lower half of the legs. Men and horses would be chopped in half by these cannonballs. Arms or legs disappeared and a hit to the torso was invariably fatal and these bowling balls of death would carry on to finish men behind as well. They didn't even have to hit. The immense force and change in air pressure could fatally change the pressure of bodily fluids in a person as it passed, causing heads to explode without even touching the victim. Some soldiers remembered being a mass of bruises and turning almost black from cannonballs coming close but missing. If you are somehow still struggling to visualise the damage a cannonball can do, remember those pirate films you've watched where the ships fire broadsides at each other, smashing great chunks of timber away. Those were the larger versions of the battlefield cannons. And frankly, if the descriptions of cannon fire from the Grand Battery at Waterloo sound awful, spare thought for those poor sailors at Trafalgar where the ship's guns would fire the equivalent of the Grand Battery in a few broadsides. Survivors of Waterloo left vivid accounts of the opening fire of the Grand Battery. Sergeant William Lawrence of the 40th Foot described a direct hit, A shell from the enemy cut our Deputy Sergeant Major in two, and having passed on to take the head off one of my company of grenadiers named William Hooper, exploded in the rear more than one yard from me hurling me at least two yards into the air, end quote. Sergeant Williams was left with the skin on the left side of his face scorched off, his sergeant's sash burnt and his sword handle blackened. A few things strike me about that quote. First, is you can see that cannonballs and shells really would cut things in half and keep going. Second, is that survival was often just a matter of luck. Sergeant Lawrence was only missed by a yard. Third, though, and what strikes me most, is that Sergeant Lawrence knows one of the dead soldiers. These weren't just people in red coats, dying namelessly in the background to him. They weren't like they are for us. Unidentified figures in the background of history. These were his fellow soldiers, his brothers in arms. We don't know what the sergeant's relationship with Private Hooper was. Was it just that he knew the face and name? Had they had angry words once? Or had they shared a bottle and a laugh on guard duty? 
Had the sergeant taught Private Hooper the ins and outs of campaign life when he joined the regiment? Who knows? I'm emphasising this so that it brings home that any battle we talk about on this podcast is a human affair, fought by humans, for human reasons, with human consequences. We can't just zoom out and say, ah, the blue ranks of the French moved in mass columns as Napoleon directed them against the neat red ranks of the British line. We have to go deeper than that and move beyond the superficial presentation we get in art or computer games. It was too much for some men. Sergeant Lawrence was greatly annoyed at a new recruit to the 40th foot, a Private Bartram, who was in his first battle. Bartram couldn't take the artillery fire and begged to be allowed to fall out as he was ill. The sergeant wasn't going to allow that and shoved Bartram back into line. Bartram then fell to the ground and refused to move. Lawrence later recalled that, quote, he ought to have been shot, end quote. That sounds harsh, but the sergeant's job was to keep the men fighting under fire. He was there, risking his life with them, and he was seeing his friends and comrades die. He probably had little sympathy for those who didn't do what he felt was needed. And Sergeant Lawrence wasn't the only person under artillery fire. Ensign Wheatley, who was stationed with the King's German Legion, described the effects too. Quote, the first man who fell was five files on my left. With the utmost distortion of feature, he lay on his side, shriveling up every muscle of his body. He twirled his elbow round and round in acute agony, then dropped lifeless. End quote. Sergeant Tutmeyer of the King's German Legion had his arm removed at the shoulder by a round from a cannon. Only a tiny stump of bone was left. But his men pushed him up onto a horse and he had to ride off to Brussels, miles away, to try to get medical help. He was certainly alive a month later, but after that it's unclear. Did he succumb to his wounds or to an infection? Or did he return home to be supported by family? Or was he left to starve and die of unemployment and drink, like many unwanted soldiers, after the war was over? It didn't matter to the chroniclers of history, but it mattered to him and those who knew him, perhaps? I think that means it should matter to us. Elbricht Heffer, also in the King's German Legion, was hit in the chest by fire. He suffered a glancing blow from a cannonball. He lost the skin and muscle down to the bone. It was miraculous that he survived. Few soldiers survived a direct hit to the torso. Captain Adair of the First Guards, who was stationed near Sergeant Lawrence, was hit in the hip. It shattered his hip bone and ripped all the flesh and muscle from his thigh, and this was fatal. Invisible shells, mixed with the more easily spotted cannonballs, hammered the Amorite army up and down the line. Men took cover in the mud as best they could, if they were allowed. This was not glorious. It was dirty and unpleasant. Fine uniforms became mud-covered, and men under fire couldn't move to drink water or relieve themselves. They had to piss themselves in the mud rather than risk exposure. Still, it was better for those that could take cover to do so. And don't forget, this is all the opening music to raise the curtain for the opera. Napoleon had teased Wellington at Hougamon and treated him to a powerful opening salvo to show him what is coming. Other armies facing Napoleon had been shaken and wavering at this stage from the early diversionary attacks and the heavy cannon fire nicely softened up for the main assault, they would be easy to break. Often, Napoleon wouldn't even have to use his Imperial Guard reserves. 
He guarded them preciously, his grumblers, as he called them. Today would be different, despite the noise and fury of the Grand Battery. Most of the Allied army was carefully hidden behind the reverse slope of Wellington's well-chosen ridge. Officers familiar with Wellington's tactics in Spain would order their men to lie down to give them further protection from fire. For all its sound and fury, the fire from the Grand Battery wasn't as effective as Napoleon would have believed. Worse for him, the ground was still muddy, so cannonballs would often stick in the mud rather than bouncing round killing. The angle of the shot meant that some French guns fired only to see their shots bounce up off the top of the Allied ridge and sail harmlessly over the enemy's head. Allied troops were dying, but not enough of them, and not quickly enough. For reasons I've understood, never fully agreed with, during his career, Napoleon had thrown away an immense technological advantage. France had a hot air balloon corps at one stage. The balloons were heavy, hard to move, weather-dependent and slow to inflate, so Napoleon had no patience for them. But imagine at Waterloo if they had been present. They could have been inflated overnight and done an aerial reconnaissance of the Allied position. Imagine the advantage this would have given Napoleon. Accurate information about the hidden Allied deployment behind the ridge. Now, take it a step further. The French had the technology to use mortars as well as cannon. A mortar is basically a short-barrelled cannon that can fire up over walls instead of a straight line. The British used them in the defence of Hougamon, and they were common in siege warfare. Again though, Napoleon's focus on speed meant that he was unimpressed with the slow-moving mortars, and he didn't bring many of them to Waterloo. How history might have changed if he had balloons and mortars available is an interesting question. True, the balloons were unreliable and weather-dependent, but the weather during the day of Waterloo was ideal for them. The balloons could have dropped notes to the ground to help direct mortar fire, primitive and slow, but given the extremely small size of the battlefield, the limited view needed and the slow reaction times, this might have worked. And this will be one of the big contrasts between Napoleonic warfare and mid to late Victorian warfare. As the Victorian age progresses, you will see a move from embracing tradition to an expectation that it will be technology that will deliver war-winning results. Innovation will go from being almost an anathema to suddenly the driving impetus of modern militaries. Still, idle speculation aside, the fact was that the French opening fire hadn't been very effective and Hougoumont was turning into a bloody meat grinder for the French. Napoleon was deferring most battlefield control to Marshal Ney. This was standard practice for Napoleon in his later career, especially as the battles grew larger. Napoleon would set the overall approach, moves and goals for the battle. Then he would leave the precise implementation to his marshals. It was highly empowering in some ways, meaning that the men on the spot got to take the decisions, but it required highly performing marshals and experienced, motivated, disciplined troops. Marshal Ney was planning to send General Darlion and his fresh troops in as the main assault on the British and Dutch section of the line, to the right of the main road from the French point of view and to the right of La Haye Sainte. This was therefore 
against the British left of centre. It required crossing the valley and ascending the light ridge, crossing it, shattering the British regiments and then consolidating their gains before pushing on to break Wellington's centre. Now, this was a tricky prospect. An uphill assault is never ideal in warfare. Men get tired. It is harder to hit shooting uphill than down. If you can't see all the enemies at the top, it is especially risky. Marshal Ney had suffered defeats against Wellington in Spain in just this situation. This attack would require particular care and it needed the fiery leading from the front marshal to hang back and carefully control his generals and men, bringing infantry, cavalry and close artillery support together with clockwork precision, but retaining the flexibility to adapt and overcome the enemy's response. At the same time, Marshal Ney had to keep an eye on Hougamont and manage his reserves carefully to prevent counter-attacks or to exploit any opportunities. It would have been asking a lot of any commander. And even at his very best, this would have been a tall ask for Marshal Ney. Of course, if you've listened to my previous episode about Waterloo, you will know that not only was this basically well out of Marshal Ney's character and abilities, even at his best, but also that he was almost certainly psychologically damaged by now, perhaps suffering from PTSD, certainly erratic, and maybe even with a death wish. This was absolutely not a man to give an intricate and difficult battlefield command upon which thousands of lives depended. Marshal Davout was in Paris as Minister of War, and he certainly would have been the right man for this job. But it was too late. Marshal Ney commanded the field, and Marshal Ney it would have to be. And it wasn't as if the French generals hadn't been planning for this. They had experience of the devastating fire of the British. And it is interesting to note that it was the British that were the main consideration. Other nationalities besides the British didn't really seem to feature in the worries of the French commanders. They knew it was the British regiments that provided the solid foundation of the Allied army. And if those could be broken, the rest would crumple quickly. In many ways, things were going well for Napoleon. The weather and the late start had done him no favours. The assault on Hougamont was at least nicely occupying Wellington. And despite not being at its most effective, the artillery fire was ferocious and was causing damage. With care and good management, an assault against Wellington's left would break it. Wellington had deployed the bulk of his forces on the other side of the Brussels Road, on his centre and his right. Napoleon probably felt that he had yet again wrong-footed Wellington. And in a way, this was correct. But as always, the devil was in the details. And the difficulty was the execution, not the plan. General Darlion had also thought carefully about this attack. His men had missed the battles of Quatre Bras and Ligny. So crucially, they were fresh and eager to get into battle. General Dut de Ergon was committed, calling out to his men, Today it is necessary to vanquish or die. The troops roared, Vive l'Empereur! British and Hanoverian officers watched in awe as the mass of French infantry began to move forward, whilst the cannonade intensified. Captain John Kincaid of the 1st Battalion of the 95th Rifles, near La Haisant, recalled, quote, Countless columns began to advance under the cover of it. 
the scene at the moment was very grand and imposing. We had had a few minutes to spare for observation. A smaller body of infantry and one of cavalry moved on their right, and on their left, another column of infantry and a formidable body of cuirassiers. Other officers recalled seeing 16 eagles and 33 battalions, masses of French troops forming up in columns, white cross belts gleaming in the sun, tall Seikos crowning in the sunshine with shining cap badges. In all, General Darlion was about to advance in a narrow area of just 1,000 yards wide with 17,000 men supported by 800 cavalry just to the west of the Brussels Road. That's the Allied left from Wellington's point of view, his slightly weaker side. All seemed in the French favour. Here was the great attack of the day. An irresistible mass of fresh, almost fanatical troops directed by the fighting Marshal Ney. Yet, even as the French attack began, the next great setback of the day was about to occur. At 1335... Napoleon was surveying the ridge with his telescope one last time before it was obscured by smoke during battle. He spotted something in the tree line to the far left of the Allied line from Wellington's point of view. Could it be mist and trees or a dark cloud or men moving? Staff officers hurriedly trained their telescopes on the spot. Some swore it was trees in the mist, but some said they were troops. But if they were troops, whose? Was it Gouchy or could it could it possibly be the Prussians? Whoever they were, they were only five miles away. Napoleon dispatched 3,000 of his precious cavalry to investigate. If it was Grouchy, then the cavalry would link up with him and Wellington would probably face utter catastrophe. Fifteen minutes later, the cavalry sent a captured Prussian black hussar to the emperor, who confirmed that Bulow's fourth corps of 30,000 men was arriving. Like Darlion, these troops were fresh. If you had listened to earlier episodes, you will know that they had been subject to muddled orders and were late to learn that the war had started, so they had missed the thrashing of the Prussians at Ligny. This must have been grim news for Napoleon. They would change the odds. Still, the situation was not a disaster. If Grouchy arrived hot on the heels in pursuit of the Prussians, as he'd been ordered, well, then Napoleon will not only have Wellington in the net, but a whole isolated Prussian corps too. If this happened, well, he'd have knocked his two enemies out of the war in a single day. Oddly enough, the Prussians were suffering from a fit of reluctance, and that came from one man, General Gneisenau. He was regarded as the brains of the Prussian army, and was openly referred to as such by Prince Blücher. Unlike Blücher though, he wasn't very good on a battlefield. He also mistrusted Wellington and the British. He was hesitant to cross the Lasny defile and join the battle. He deliberately held up the order of march to slow the Prussians down. It took Blücher to overcome his concerns and push the Prussians to march to aid Wellington. Still, that would take time to organise and require coordination with Wellington. Napoleon didn't delay though. He knew what the arrival of the Prussians meant. Wellington had to be beaten quickly before the Prussians could tip the scale. He had launched Darlion's attack. He sent two cavalry divisions and two infantry divisions of 8,000 badly needed men under General Labau as well as 32 guns to hold up the Prussians. With these gone, 
Hugobon sucking in more and more men, and now General Darlion committed to the main attack. Napoleon was stretched thin. He still had the magnificent Imperial Guard and the cavalry reserve, but there was almost nothing else available to him. Darlion must break Wellington. The reserves were only there to guarantee a victory by exploiting a win, or to stave off absolute defeat by covering a retreat. By 1400 hours, the Prussians had begun to cross the Lassny Gap, with Bulow's 4th Corps in the lead. But it was in marching order, long thin lines of men to thread their way through a narrow forest. They would take hours to get there. For now, Wellington and the Allies would fight alone. And this was the critical period for Napoleon. Did he silently kick himself for not starting the battle at daybreak? Imagine if he had, and the main attack had started at 09.30 instead of 13.30. Imagine if Ney hadn't delayed at Quatre Bras. Imagine that Napoleon hadn't delayed after Ligny. It is also interesting to note that some of Wellington's men, in Lambert's brigade, had arrived by ship from America, unloaded from the ships, forced march to Waterloo, and arrived at the battlefield at 10.30. If Napoleon had started at 9.30, Wellington would have been short a whole brigade, and the Prussians would have been basically a whole day away from being able to help. Although this would have meant that the gallant Sergeant Lawrence would have missed the battle, as his regiment was part of Lambert's brigade. I don't know if the sergeant fought the Americans in the War of 1812, but the 4th Battalion had, and had lost a lot of its officers at the Battle of New Orleans. Why am I telling you that? Well, apart from it being mostly relevant, have a think about what it means. British troops could be deployed anywhere in the world. The government thought nothing of redeploying a regiment from combat theatre to combat theatre as needed. Some of these regiments would become fearsome veterans. More than that, though, it meant that the soldiers who survived major battles like Waterloo would shape the spirit of their regiment for years to come. Regiments carried the memory of these actions into future wars. Some of the troops who fought in the brutal action of Waterloo would be sent to fight in the colonies of the British Empire, on the frontiers or in other major actions. They would have been tough men who had come from a life of poverty, where death and violence were commonplace. Then they joined the army, only to be forged into a new hardness by Wellington and Napoleon at Waterloo. They took these attitudes, experiences and life views with them around the world as they started the major period of British imperial expansion. They and their officers would train and mould new recruits into the army. In times of major crisis, some officers would remind troops that the regiment had fought at Waterloo. In the same way that World War II or 9-11 shaped generations, while Waterloo was the shaping of the British Army and gave it almost a creation myth. Now time lost can't be regained. Especially in war, time is the most precious resource available. All now rested on General Darlion and Marshal Ney. They had to succeed and do it quickly. Unfortunately, the problems began immediately for General Darlion and his men. They marched through the French guns and down the slopes into the valley. Drums pounded and cheers went up, but soon they were in the mud of the valley bottom. 
Men couldn't march, just struggling through the mud as best they could. Some men had their shoes sucked off in the deep mud. The fire of the Grand Battery roared overhead, but it had to stop as the French climbed the slope. Dubois and his cavalry went up the Brussels Road towards La Haisante and moved off round to the left of the road, making for the British and Allied centre. General Courtois was close by with two brigades, in a more open formation than the dense battalion columns used by Generals Danzelot and Marconnet. He was supposed to attack La Haisante and the crossroads, supported by Dubois and his heavy cavalry. Then to his right were Danzelot and Marconnet with the massed formations. General Durette and his division were to protect the right side of the attack and perhaps link with Rouchy if he arrived. The men on both sides knew that this was about to be the moment where they would really earn their pay as soldiers. Either the French attack would succeed, in which case it was likely that the French cavalry would sweep in to butcher thousands, or the Allies would kill enough French to stop the attack and beat it off. We have vivid descriptions of the attack from both sides. British guns raked the approaching French with vicious fire. Gunfire and drum beats and shouted orders and cheers filled the air. Smoke hung across areas of the battlefield and mouths went dry from fear and the constant biting off of gunpowder charges. It was hellish confusion. Up until now, apart from the fighting at Hougoumont, most of the battlefield had been relatively peaceful. There had even been some civilians wandering around chatting and sightseeing. Now though, the French were closing. A French account gives us a powerful feeling of what this was like. Quote, we were met by a hail of balls from above the road at the left. Two batteries now swept our ranks and shot from hedges distant, pierced us through and through. That's interesting to note there. Some of the British positions were hidden by a hedge in front of the concealed sunken lane. The French didn't know about the lane and it was a serious obstacle for them. The British had taken the opportunity to carefully hide cannon in the hedge to add to the impressive firestorm that the French had to face. The British 95th Rifles added to the French pain by pouring in accurate long-range fire from their position in the sandpit near La Haisante. The French pressed on hard. The noise must have reached a horrific pitch. This is not something that we can understand just from the static and highly stylized artwork and prints of the period and the pressure on the Allied line intensified. The French were forcing the top of the ridge, pushing through the hedges. The British gunners acted on Wellington's standing orders to leave their guns and take shelter from the main assault, only to return to their guns later if the attack was beaten off. This lessened the Allied fire considerably. Bijlant's 7th Infantry Battalion from the Netherlands began to waver. They began to break. The French were seriously hampered by the sunken lane. This was more like a ravine, according to some eyewitnesses, and forced the French to slow down and struggle across. But still, as the Netherlanders broke and ran, it looked like the French had done it. They were on the cusp of breaking the Allied centre, splitting Wellington's army in half and smashing it. The French were showing why they were considered one of the toughest, bravest fighting powers in the 19th century. Still... French formations were disordered and confused by the hedge and the lane, and the sheer number of men crammed into a small area. Smoke hung heavily on everyone. Cries were going up from the wounded and the dying. 
the shot horses whinnying in agony. The French just needed time to carry the assault and reform. Then one more push on to victory. There were still some British units left to try check the French attack. This might be one of the numerically weakest parts of Wellington's line, but it was held by some very dangerous men. Sir Thomas Picton was the well-known commander, experienced and tough. In his younger days in the Caribbean, he was known to have tortured slaves to such an extent that he was actually put on trial. He secured a dubious acquittal on the grounds that Spanish colonial law that governed the particular colony allowed the torture. Despite this, Francisco de Miranda had recommended him to Wellington and he had distinguished himself in Spain. He was still in his civilian clothes, but he was committed. He had two brigades to use and he sent them forward. One, commanded by General Pack, was made of fearsome Highlanders. The 1st, 42nd and 92nd regiments. It is never nice to be on the receiving end of an attack by the Highlanders and at Waterloo they would give the French a lesson. These were the tough men of the glens and the rough towns and cities of Scotland. They were fierce and proud and ready. They might be only 1,800 against 8,000, but they would fight. They moved forward the 50 yards to fill the gap left by the fleeing Netherlanders and poured three brutal volleys into the French. Then they stood to hold the line. At the critical point of La Haisant, the fighting was brutal and intense. La Haisant was not well fortified and fighting raged fiercely. British General Alton spotted the danger of losing La Haisant. He sent moored troops to steady the situation. They set off across the open ground to reinforce their beleaguered comrades. Unfortunately, the ground was gently rolling in this area and the French cavalry under General Dubois were hidden in a fold. A disaster was about to occur. The German reinforcements were marching in column as fast as they could, but they were spotted by the hidden French cavalry. The high discipline of the French was about to pay off. The ground was too wet for a full-on charge, but they could manage a fast, well-ordered trot against the exposed Germans. It was too late to form square. Imagine the horror the Germans must have felt to know that you are doomed and not be able to do anything but still have to wait for death to hit home. Hit home it did. The Lundberg battalion was effectively wiped out. Three officers were killed, the standards captured, half the men dead and another 180 more were left missing in action. Then the cavalry pushed on past La Haisante, round towards the British centre. They even captured two British guns. The thin red line of the British and their allies was wavering. The battle hung in the balance. What could turn the tide for the allies? Well, you'll have to join me next time as we finish our mini-series on the Battle of Waterloo. Okay, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. You can reach me at the email, ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com on Twitter or via the Facebook page. Also, don't forget to check out the website at ageofvictoriapodcast.com and please do leave a review on iTunes. Thanks and take care.